Tice, who's, uh, who's been with us a few times before. I first met Rico when he was in the sixth form, and uh, he was pretty scary then as a 16-year-old. Um, and that was before he'd grown up. But uh, in fact, he's, uh, when you get to know him, he's just a, a gentle puppy, really. And he tells me that his, uh, his wife has just had their, their third child, five-week-old Mercy. So, uh, Rico, many congratulations, and, and thank you for coming. Maybe you were already up at four o'clock this morning. <laughs> But uh, Rico's based at All Souls Langham Place, just next to Broadcasting House. And when he's not there, he's up and down the country speaking in schools and universities and churches. And he's also devised the Christianity Explored course that some of you may have done. A a great introduction to the Christian faith, looking at Mark's gospel. But without any more ado, I'm going to hand over to Rico. He's going to speak for a while. We'll definitely wrap up uh, comfortably by quarter to eight uh, if you need to go. uh, But there'll be more... Uh, refreshments then but uh, over to Rico thank you so much Tim thank you very much and thanks for getting up this morning I really do mean that Uh, a a great effort just to say yeah the name is Rico Tice it's not Tico Rice I spend my life being called Tico Rice and people think I'm number 42 at the takeaway but it is Rico Tice Um, look I chose the um, uh, subject why bother with the Christian faith or why bother with Christianity because to be frank as I grew up I thought whatever is worth bothering with it certainly is not Christian faith that was definitely my, my view. I remember uh, uh, thinking, uh, as I sat in church, and I was taken along now and again by my mum, I remember thinking, this is just so boring. And I used to sit in church and count the bricks up the wall. I'm glad there are no bricks here, because that's what I would have been doing. I just thought it, it, it's boring. The second view I had of the Christian faith wasn't just that it was boring, it was irrelevant. So I couldn't see what relevance this book, written 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, had to me. So in actually, to try and make it relevant, what I'd do is leaf through it and look for references to rugby. I loved rugby as a little boy, so I used to leaf through it. And as I went through it, I did find a number I was pleased with. One to referees in John 9, verse 1. I knew a man blind from birth. I thought that was quite good. One to foul play in Acts 13, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas were sent off. And my favorite one was to crash tackling in Acts 20, verse 26. It's better to give than receive. And that was basically the result of four years of Bible study. I just thought this is just irrelevant. The third issue, and this may strike you more, I I just didn't think it was true. So in my mind, I mean, forgive me for this because it's a blasphemy, but I had a picture of Jesus as a sort of long-haired hippie in a nightie floating around the Holy Land. I just thought, you know, it's just not true. And so, so, you know, at school we used to sing and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's pastures green. No, they didn't as far as I could work out. So it was just something for the nursery. It was something sentimental for Christmas and Easter. And actually that's what I thought I'd probably be. I wouldn't be so much Church of England, see Obby, but see Andy, Christmas and Easter. That's what, where, where I'd be. But it just wasn't real. The next issue I had were the clergy I met. I mean, I don't know about you and who you grew up with, but they were just so wet. I can't believe I am one now. Well, the reason I'm one now is I got a third at university. So when I got my third, I said to my tutor, was I close to a 2-2? He said, no, he kept a very solid third. So I knew the Anglican church was the only option available. And just to say, if you are struggling on career moves, that's what you should be doing. Look, it's a great life. You work one day a week. I just love it. It's absolutely fine. But, but I just, the clergy I came across, it was just quite obvious to me they couldn't have done anything else. And so uh, I spent my time trying not to be wet. So I spent my time in rugby circles doing things like this. And I didn't know many clergy that could do that. Actually, I've slightly concussed myself. Do you know these? These are crushable cans. 
So um, I've got the most beaten up car in central London. It's a Ford Fiesta 1.1. I drive through the middle of London. I stop at the lights. Someone comes up alongside in the West End in a Porsche with someone very glamorous next to them. They look disparagingly across at me in my car. I look back at them, crush us on my head, and as we drive off, I've won. So this saves me about 100,000 quid, this does. But, you know, it is easy to deceive people. And as I saw the Christian faith as boring, irrelevant, and untrue, Gents, you know, I was deceived. It is easy to be deceived. And funnily enough, there was one person who put me back on the straight and narrow. And interestingly, it was my godfather, which is what godfathers are meant to do. But the way in which he did it wasn't great. So on the 6th of August, 1982, my godfather, my dad's older brother, who'd been to the Olympics as a yachtsman, he lived in Canada, made loads of money in shipping. I worshipped the ground he stood on. He had four daughters, no kids, and so I was like a sort of uh, a son to him, really. 6th of August, 1982, he gets killed in a cliff fall. So he has a small boat, he moors at a small island, he goes for a, a walk round it, there's a tree, a tree across a cliff path, he tries to climb over this tree, uh, this sort of tree stump, slips, falls off a cliff, and suddenly my godfather's dead. And that is the first time that I saw my father cry, as we hear the news of it. And the next thing I understood was this, is that death severs loving relationships. So you have these people you love, and they're suddenly gone. I've taken two funerals so far this year, and both those people were in very good health six months ago. And suddenly they're they're gone. And what do you do about it? And the, the funeral I took last Thursday, I just, the wail of the widow, the wail, the agony of it, a uh, very good marriage, and I just, it was just haunting. And you know, I've buried a number of my school friends, and you stand at the graveside and you say these words over the, over the grave of a mate, and you look down, and there is the coffin, and you say these words from Psalm 103 as the vicar. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, but the wind blows in its place and remembers it no more. So we do flourish, but it's over so quickly. And gents, when the Bible talks about our life, it talks about the brevity of life. It says we're like water that drops into the ground and it's gone. We're like a breath. We're like a dream in the morning. You wake up, you think, what was that about that? Oh, I can't remember. We're like chaff that you throw in the air and it's blown away. And what was interesting was as I grew up before my godfather was killed, nobody had spoken to me about death, either at home or at school. No one had ever sat me down. It was a total taboo subject. It's amazing in our culture, we've moved all the graveyards. So my kids' playground uh, up in Westminster used to be a graveyard, but that's now behind a big wall up in Harrow, and, and we don't walk past graveyards. It's a taboo subject, and I had never been talked about it, and suddenly I'm, gone, he's, I'm, suddenly I'm going, he's dead, and I did not have a philosophy of life that coped with death. And thank you for coming this morning, but can I ask you that? I've taken two funerals this year. Do you have a philosophy of life that copes with life at its broadest point at that point. And all I knew was as a 15, 16-year-old, I definitely didn't. I had no idea, and nor did anyone in the family. The next issue that hit me is from this passage. I wonder if you can see it, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. Here is King Solomon, and he is a man with the gifts and the talent and the time and the intellect to look for meaning in life wherever he thinks it might be found. And it was interesting, my godmother, who uh, uh, wasn't, uh, she was lovely, but wasn't really a woman of Christian faith, gave me a little good news Bible for confirmation. And I used to read it. 
and I recently opened it up, and this page nearly fell out. I don't know how I came across it, but I read it again and again as a schoolboy over the year and a half in which I think I, sort of I was coming to faith. And here is King Solomon, and he's trying to work out what life's about. So he writes, do you see the start there? I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Well, I'd worked out that we had a few days. What's the point of it? And Solomon, as he looks for meaning in life, he starts off by saying, it's about pleasure. He says it's a pleasure-based life. So what you do is you just go and have a laugh. Do you see that Uh, uh, as we look down line two? That proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? So you just have a laugh. But, you know, I've taken the funeral of a man who 48 hours before was the heart and soul of the party. And in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, Solomon himself writes, even in laughter the heart may ache. So you can be having a laugh and yet deep down be so profoundly lonely yet be having a laugh. So he says, it's not laughter. I'll tell you what it's about in a pleasure-based life. It's about getting absolutely smashed. You go out Friday night, Saturday night, you get legless. You You just get out there and forget it and do what you have to do to do that. So he says, verse three, do you see? As we look down, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I think my mind still guiding me with wisdom meant that he woke up and he had a massive hangover. So four o'clock Sunday afternoon, he suddenly, what, your head's going, what did you do that for? So he says, it's not laughter, it's not getting smashed. I'll tell you, the meaning of life is sex. That's what it is. Can we see as we look down verse 8, halfway through the next paragraph? I'm as silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. Now, he had 300 concubines and 700 wives, and these were the beautiful women of the generation because they were given as part of treaties. So the most beautiful women would have been in his harem. And yet he finds the paradox of pleasure. The more you have the less it satisfies. So he says, look, life's not about pleasure. It's not a pleasure-based life. He says, life is about work. You make your mark by your work. That's what life's about. You make a name for yourself. Have a look down, verse 4. Can we see? I undertook great projects. I built houses myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I, owned, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. So Solomon works and works and works. And then in verse 9, he gets to what for many is the objective of work. Do you see verse 9? I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So he walks into the room, and everybody goes, he's the man. So I don't know, Nelson Mandela, if he walked in here, he was still alive. If he walked in now, we really would be on our feet. But I mean, if he, if he walked in, uh, you know, in the last decade, we'd have, we'd have stood up 27 years in prison for the imprisonment of your people. Great man, you'd have been on your feet. Frankly, for me, Martin Johnson, I'd probably be on my feet as well. But, you know, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that these guys, that, you know, he walks in and everyone says, no, look, look at him. He's the one that provides. He's the source. And yet, you see, he, he, he does all this work. He works so hard. But what does he make of all the work he's done? It's very interesting, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve... 
Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. What's the point of it all? How does it, how does it last? Uh, yesterday, I was in my parents' home. My mum died three years ago. My, my father's got dementia now, so I, I saw him in, the home, in a home nearby. But I was dismantling my parents' home yesterday. It was an amazing sense of meaninglessness. This home that my parents so loved and my mum put together, and you just sit there and you just dismantle it, send stuff off to the tip or whatever. And it'd be interesting if, as you arrived this evening, uh, this morning, and, uh, and uh, uh, Tim was outside, and I was running around in circles, and you said, what's that rather fat Anglican clergyman doing over there? And he was our speaker, Rico, he's just chasing the wind. So what, how do we chase the wind in terms of, of a work-based life? Well, what we do is we set our goals, and then we achieve them, and then there's euphoria, but then there's emptiness. So that's the cycle I find in the West End. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. Jack Higgins, the author, was asked, what do you know at 60 that you wished you'd known at 16? He said, I wished I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. So Johnny Wilkinson, uh, after they won the World Cup in 2003, he said, I did one lap of the pitch. I felt absolute euphoria. And then I started asking myself, what's next? So there's, there's King Solomon, and, and he's feeling that. What is the point of it? And for me, you see, my godfather had been killed, and I was thinking, what was the point of his life? It seemed as though he was climbing up a ladder, and the ladder was leaning on the wrong, wrong wall. I just didn't know what it was about, and this passage reflected it. The third issue that emerged after my uh, godfather was killed was my godmother opened up his wallet, and she found a list of mistress's addresses. So it was then decided, this is my childhood hero, that there'd be no funeral. She was so upset by this. She said, I don't want these women to appear at the funeral. So there was no funeral. So my godfather's ashes were thrown over the side of his boat with a bottle of bourbon, and that was the end of my childhood hero. And suddenly I realized that actually there's a problem in life. There's the real and the ideal, and there is a profound selfishness. We're not who we should be. We, we present one thing, we are another. My favorite example of this, of course, has got to be this book, Lance Armstrong, It's Not About the Bike. And now we know it wasn't about the bike. <laughs> and uh, my favorite is the Australian Lending Library. Did you hear about this? That on the day the drug scandal was announced, decided to move this book from autobiography to fiction. <laughs> but there is a problem. There's this gap. So for me, I began to see, I saw it in my godfather's life, there was no funeral. Suddenly, it, it, there's a double life he's lived, there's this selfishness. My godmother, my aunt, died of cancer sort of four or five years later, and I, I think the stress and the pain and the grief had something to do with that, I don't know. But I'm sitting there looking at that, but also at that stage, I think I'm such a great guy, I decide I owe it to the world, to future generations, to you, to record my life, as 16-year-olds do. So I'm sitting there, no wonder Tim thought what he did of me, and it was absolutely true. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm, 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 I take this diary, and I keep this diary in 1981, and here I am, and I think I'm a great guy, and I write this diary, I find out I'm a total prat. It's the most amazing experience writing it. In my diary, I'd say, wouldn't it be great if, if uh, the starving were fed? I'd ask my parents for a larger allowance. As you can see, I would eat it. In my diary, I'd say, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was world peace, but I'd never lay aside the weapons of malice and sarcasm I used in my own self-defense. In my diary, I'd say, and I had a twin sister, so, so sexual purity was important. I, I sort of wanted her protected. That's why I'm so sensitive to women, by the way. I was in the womb with a girl. There you go. But, I'm, uh, but, but I, I've got this precious twin sister, but there's pornography all over the school. And I find that, that there's two things. In my diary, I, I'm sort of saying, I think marriage is a really precious thing. At parties, all I want to do is go to bed with girls. And there's this, there's this disconnect. We present one thing, we are another. Years later, I read in Romans 
uh, Paul the Apostle writes in the letter to the Romans, I don't do the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I, I keep on doing. What's wrong? Why do I hurt the people I love most? And I'm beginning to see that profoundly. So there I am, 1981, 1982, with those three issues. Death, meaning, selfishness, all from my godfather's life. Now, what do you do about that? I had no idea what to do. All I can say is this, is that I'd started going to a mixed communion service they had at school. But our school and the local girls' school used to have a communion service together. And there was one reason I went. There was a very pretty girl called Emma Young, and she used to go. I never spoke to her, but I used to like watching her walk up and, the down, up and down the aisle to communion. I was desperately disappointed when she didn't come. I don't think she realizes that she's the reason I'm now ordained. Anyway, there you have it. So... One time I'm sitting there and something is said which is the most important thing said to me in 10 years at school. The guy at the front speaking says, who is this man who in the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and then, as he's being judicially murdered, cries out for the people killing him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I remember thinking that is impressive because I discovered in the previous year from this diary that I was a hypocrite. I said one thing and did another. But I suddenly saw in the life of Jesus, it was an amazing thing, even when he was being murdered, there was a correlation between life and lip. So he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He's strung up on a cross and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And can I say, at this point in time, at this moment in history, is there a message that's more important than that with what's going on in the world? An amazing act of compassion and forgiveness for his enemies, for people who hate him so much they are murdering him. And then I began to see that the Christian faith, and gents, I don't know if you've got this yet, at its heart is not a philosophy, it's a person. It's the person of Jesus. And then I saw that he hit head on those three issues I was facing. And at the start of 2016, can I utterly commend him to you for this reason? First of all, death. Now, as I say this, I'm holding my best mate's funeral card um, from university. And uh, I took his funeral in 2005 through the tears. His three kids were there at the back of the coffin. Died suddenly of a pulmonary embolism. And I can't believe he's gone, really. So, so uh, as I do that, I hold this card of a, of, of a, of a person, a, a guy I, I had a great affection for. And what I began to find out was this, is that Jesus Christ, he lived and he taught and he had a band of followers and he was tried in a Roman and Jewish court and he was sentenced to die and they strung him up on a cross and they put a spear through his side and they took him off the cross and they certified him as dead and three days later he's walking around again. And if he got through death himself, he can get me through. Now I know this is against the laws of nature. That's the whole point. The whole point is against the laws of nature. God has made the laws of nature. In his world there are laws of the universe. When you're dead, you're dead. But he reverses them in order that we would know this is his son and that the coffin is not an exitless box. So when I took this guy's funeral, uh, I, I stood at the back of the church and I said these words of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, will you trust me with your death? And can I say, I used to think, you know, that this, this whole thing, it's just an imaginary world. Can I say, I think this is intellectually checkable. There are courses you can go on, there are books you can read where you can see, I know it's against the laws of nature, that's the whole point. God did this so that we know this is God who's come to meet us. When I was with my mum and she was dying in Basingstoke Hospital four years ago, I was in the hospital with her as she died. I loved her very much. And I said three things to her. I said goodbye, we'd all say that. I said I love you, we'd all say that. And the third thing I said was, I'll see you again. 
Now, can I say, you cannot, you cannot say that unless you know Christ has risen from the dead. Because there is before us, there's this doorway of death. We don't know when we're going to go through it. But there's a man who's been through the door. He's come back and he says, I can take you through. I can take your loved ones through. Now, can I commend this to you? And gents, may I just say as a vicar, taking a couple of funerals ready this year, it's an agonizing thing, taking people's funerals when they've had no idea about this. They've never given it time. They've never given it thought. Secondly, what about the meaning of life? Can we see, have a look down that verse 3 again we've got here as we begin to draw to a close. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under heavens during the few days of their lives. I mean, what, what is the point of it all? What is the point? What, you know, I've got this small life. I don't know how long I'll be breathing for. What does it mean? Well, we've got war and peace on the box at the moment. So here's Tolstoy. And actually, uh, by the way, this is, the sort of, this is some short stories from Tolstoy uh, here, including his autobiography called A Confession. I recommend this to you because then you can say you read Tolstoy, but it's 15 pages each. So really, I do give you, I'd, I'd commend it. War and peace, you get into bed, you fall asleep. It's a brick. It knocks you out as you do that. So, so here is Tolstoy, and in his autobiography, A Confession, he says, just like Solomon, he says, my whole life was looking for meaning. I just didn't know what it was about. So he says, as a young man, as a soldier, I thought it was a wine, women, and song. That's why. He said, there was great pleasure, but there was a hollowness. He said, then I inherited my father's estates, and I thought the meaning of life was wealth. He said, I could do great good with my money, but still there was emptiness. So then he says, I know what the meaning of life is. It's fame. So he says, actually, if I'm, if I'm known as a great man, that'll be the meaning. And then you get one of the coolest lines in literature, open brackets, because he writes, so I wrote War and Peace. I wrote this book, okay, and wherever I went, I was seen as a great man, but still there was emptiness. So then he writes, in 1872, I married and had 13 children. Again, open brackets, this for a period stopped me finding the meaning of life. Can you imagine? 13 kids. But then he says, one day as he watches his little boy playing, he cries out as he watches this toddler play. He says, what meaning is my life that the inevitability of death does not destroy? I look at my little boy. One day he's going to be gone. He's going to be dust. I love him so much. I pick him up. He's my life. And he's going to be gone. What's the point of it? And then Tolstoy says, as he looks at the life of a peasant farmer, he says, I then spoke to him because I saw a radiance in him. And he quoted me some verses, Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said, At last my soul found rest in this relationship with Jesus Christ. As Now, this is an extraordinary thing. What happens is, you go and hear the Bible. You maybe look at it with someone. You're in a small group. But what happens is, he starts walking off the pages. It's like the Bible's got your name and address in it. I, I mean, my dad was in tobacco. I didn't come from a Christian home. And suddenly you're going, flip. Where's this coming from? And that's what happened. Tolstoy found that actually this, this, this person of Jesus Christ walked off the pages and met him. And can I say, it, it is an extraordinary thing because with goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness, this is what meets the emptiness. And actually, what, what, what I began to found, find was this, was that Jesus Christ, he became as central to life as a ball is to a game. Can you imagine England kicking off against Australia in the World Cup a few months ago without a ball? Actually, it might have been better. Anyway, there we go. But, you know, you, a lot of people, as, as they sit here, you're thinking, well, look, you're going to basically give me some rules. Now, can I say, I think the Bible's rules are great. I think they reflect God's character. 
He says don't lie because he's a God of truth. He says don't commit adultery because he's faithful. He says don't steal because he's a giving God. But actually, the heart of it, gents, and this is what grabs the heart, is this relationship with Jesus Christ where he becomes like the ball. To not know him is going through the motions. Well, let me finish. Lastly, as I close, what about my diary? You see, here was this book in which I was cornered by my conscience. But more than that, what I began to see was it was a book in which I'd offended God. So time and again, I'd slapped God in the face. I'd gone my own way. And then I began to realize this. My older brother started to talk to me about this because he'd come to faith himself. But what I began to realize was this, and I say this unequivocally, there is a judgment to come. So Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that's the evidence, gents, that we will be raised and judged. There is a judgment to come. The Bible says it's given for all men to die once and then face judgment. And I make no apology for that because it means how I treat you matters to God and how you treat me matters to God and how we treat the world matters to God. It's amazing. You can have, you can have people who present well in church and yet they are acting appallingly. And I've been through something like that recently with, with somebody. And actually I've come to the conclusion that this man has no fear of judgment whatever. He can't do. He wouldn't have behaved as he had if he did. But there is a judgment to come. It's a very, very good thing. It means justice will triumph. But on that day of judgment, either I pay for my wrongdoing myself, and so again, I'm lying to you unless I tell you that the Lord Jesus himself tells us of a place called hell. He speaks of it, the most loving man that ever lived. Either I can pay myself in hell, or I can allow Jesus, as he dies on the cross, to pay for me. So when I look up at the cross, it's not just a Galilean carpenter dying. Jesus dies there in my place for my wrongdoing. It's as though here I am, here is my wrongdoing, here is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray, each has gone his own way, the Lord has laid on him the wrongdoing of us all. So he dies for me. And do you know what's amazing about that? I come from a family that has said, almost universally that says, because we're good people, God will accept us. Well, can I ask, why on earth did God send his son to die if your goodness is good enough? So I take a funeral and they say, oh, Vicar, he never heard a fly, by which they mean God will accept him because he's decent. Why did he send Christ to die if my goodness is good enough? A few years ago, I was playing rugby against Dings Crusaders in Bristol, and the Dings ground was known as the Killing Fields. It was never a great place to play. I arrived at the ground. I saw my opposite number. He was built like an outside toilet. The bloke was massive. I thought, this is going to be dreadful. And I looked across, and you know, you look at a guy like that, and you think, what does his mother look like? I mean, the bloke was vast. And I looked across, and he was holding a tiny baby boy in his arms. And I thought, well, maybe he's not playing. Maybe he's babysitting. Maybe his mother's playing. I didn't know. Just before kickoff, he handed this baby across. He walked onto the field. He ripped me limb from limb. Half time, goes straight back to the baby boy. Second half, comes back on, throws me around like straw in the wind. Can I tell you, it's incredibly humiliating. The thing about playing prop forward is you can get totally humiliated, and I can tell you I know about that. So, so, so he, he's just massive. Honestly, in, in his chest is like a car in second gear. It's incredible the strength coming through there. At the end of the game, the baby boy's back in his arms. There's no question who the father is. There's no question who the son is. I'd like to see anyone lay a finger on that little boy. It'd be amusing to behold the results. Now, here's the issue. Do you think God loved his son, Jesus Christ, any less than that? Yet he sends him to die. And that means three things, and I finish with this. Number one, it means my sin is serious. Can I say, gents, there is a day of judgment. Please hear me on that. Secondly, I must be loved. 
I looked at my two little boys this morning, uh, just before I came out. I wouldn't let them die for anyone, but God sent his son to die for me. And thirdly, it's a gift. This is a gift paid for by Jesus Christ. So what we're asking you at the start of 2016, and thank you so much for coming, is will you make time to unwrap the gift? You see, what he says is, he says, in the face of my guilt, here's forgiveness on Good Friday. In the face of my death, here's hope on Easter Day. In the face of my emptiness deep down, here is the Lord Jesus who's as central to life as a ball is to a game. So please unwrap the gift. It's all paid for by him. And Tim, I'm sure, would agree with this. The agony of being a clergyman in this culture is the people who just walk past. They just walk past. Please don't do that. Please make time to investigate, to look further. And if you do do that, can I say, you'll find out what verse 3 is all about. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. What is good? Well, not just to enjoy the creation, that's marvelous, but to know the creator. Thanks so much for listening. Rico, thanks so much for coming to speak to us this morning. Uh, it was terrific to hear you. Um, gents, we're, we're about to wrap up. Can I just offer th- uh, four things beginning with, with the letter B? The first is that you'll notice on the tables where you're sitting cards advertising a, 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 a group called Big Questions, which uh, runs here on Wednesday evenings. We started last night. There are four still to run. If you want to know a little bit more about the kind of questions that are being dealt with each week, details on the back of that do take a card um, also Burning Man has um, a- another guest event uh, this term on Thursday the 3rd of March uh, Roger Simpson will be here and um, we'd be delighted to see you back here we meet fortnightly but that's our next kind of uh, invitation event uh, thirdly there's a bookstall by the door with some uh, literature if you're interested in uh, reading uh, particularly uh, from, a, from a kind of interested skeptic's perspective, uh, books there. And the fourth thing is that there is more bacon butties at the back of the church. So if you need to go, uh, do go, but if you'd like to stay and chat, and uh, I'm sure Rico will be here for a while if you'd like to come and chat with him, ask me any questions. Uh, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Rico, uh, and uh, have a good day, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>